Amen. At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss all of the children, kindergarten through fifth grade, to Children's Church. Today is Valentine's Day. So guys, if you haven't gotten your gifts, your cards, it's too late. Well, I went to Albertsons over the weekend, and there was a line stretched around the front of the store for the, for the flower department. And I am grateful that my wife says, you don't need to get me flowers on Valentine's Day. And all of you are thinking, yeah, but she doesn't mean that. <laughs> Valentine's Day. On Valentine's Day, we, we talk about love. We talk about what it means to demonstrate uh, the love that we have for our significant other, for our spouses. And in today's world, in today's society, we use the word love uh, way too much. Uh, we talk about uh, loving fried chicken and loving ice cream. And, and I love when... Uh, when X, Y, Z happens, and, and we, we, we throw out the word love uh, all the time, and love has become something that is, is overused, and so the question uh, that, that we come to is, is, what is love? What does it mean to love? And I hope that as we look at the passage this morning, uh, that we will leave this place knowing true love. What is true love? That we will know true love when we leave. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. In talking about love, we're going to talk about the beheading of John the Baptist. And everybody says, oh, okay, well that makes sense. If you love your husband, you'll cut his head off. Uh, so Matthew chapter 14, we're going to look at the beheading of John the Baptist. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. <clears throat> At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servant, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had arrested John, he bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised an oath, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oath and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. When the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Let's pray. God, we thank you for... Your great grace and great mercy. Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage, that we may somehow 
see the gospel message, that we may see the love that you have demonstrated to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, may we leave this place knowing what it is that is true love. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, in his wonderful name, in his matchless name, in his powerful name, we pray. Amen. What a Valentine gift. The head of John the Baptist on a platter. How do you say love with the head of the man that you hate on a platter? Well, let me, let me kind of back up for a little, for a little bit and, and lay the foundation and tell you the story how we got to John the Baptist's head being cut off. Well, uh, we see here in Matthew chapter 14, this story is also echoed in Mark chapter 6, uh, we see that Herod, the Tetrarch, Herod is, is now ruler, he is now ruling over the people, the Jewish people, uh, in the province there under the Roman government. Now, this is not the same Herod, Herod the Great, that was ruler whenever Jesus was born. This is his son. Herod the Great had three sons. Uh, one of his sons is named uh, Herod Antipas. This is the Herod that we're talking about here in Matthew chapter 14. Another one of his sons is named uh, Philip. And so what happened was Philip had a wife, Herodias, that loved Herod Antipas, and Herod loved Philip's wife. And so they desired, now, now Herod Antipas also had a wife, but that didn't, that didn't mean anything because Herod An, or Herodias was obviously uh, more desirable than his wife to, to Herod Antipas, and, and, and she wanted to be with Herod Antipas rather than Philip, and so they, they got together. She, uh, she left Philip, and she married uh, Herod Antipas and Herodias, was was happy and we all know that a happy wife is a happy life we all know that that in order uh for herod antipas for herod who is the king here of the jews in the region of judea in order for for him to be happy that his wife has to be happy regardless of the fact that it's also his sister-in-law so so herod here takes his sister-in-law to become his wife and they are living happily ever after well, John the Baptist, being the man of God that he is, being the man who preaches law and justice and judgment, speaks of this, this union and says, you know, it's not a good idea for you to marry your sister-in-law. In fact, it is contrary to the law of God for you to take your sister-in-law as your wife. Not only is it adulterous, but it is it is contrary to to the levitical law it's kind con- and you being a jew especially the king of the jews in in title the the ruler of the jewish people there in the roman province it is unlawful for you to do this and so the prophet speaks the law of god into the life of the people and says thus saith the lord it is unlawful it is immoral it is unethical for you to steal your brother literally your brother's wife and make her your own now this went over very well with Herodias. And she said, you know, I really don't like this John the Baptist character. Why don't you put him to death? You are, after all, the king. You can do whatever you want. Why don't you put him to death? But Herod, understand, understanding the, the following that John the Baptist had. Remember we looked earlier in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, at the, the following of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist had a tremendous amount of following that he himself 
was all of the people in and around the region of Judea had gone out. Many of them had been baptized for repentance in the Jordan River. Many of them had followed, uh, had followed the teaching and the preaching of John, understanding that he was a prophet, the first prophet to come after 400 years of silence. And so John the Baptist carried a great amount of credibility with the people. And so Herod says, if I kill him, if I, if I kill this prophet, then I fear the multitudes. I fear that they're going to rise up and they're going to overthrow my throne and, and I am going to be subject to, to many kings in the past who've been overthrown. And so Herod, seeking to save his own skin and seeking a compromise in order to satisfy both his wife and the people, said, I'll just put John the Baptist in jail. And so that's what he does. I'll silence him. He can't tell the people, he can't speak, uh, he can't speak the word of God, he can't, he can't pronounce my immorality and, and, and uh, speak against my unethical behavior if he's in prison, so I'll shut him up. So he throws him in prison. Well, on his birthday, on his birthday, he has a big birthday bash like, uh, like all of the, the kings and the uh, nobility would do. They invited all these guests from uh, other provinces, from other regions. There were Roman authorities there, Jewish authorities there. He has this big birthday party. And during this birthday party, Herodias' daughter, now I'm assuming Herodias' daughter from her first marriage, Philip, that's what, what we would like to, or that's what uh, the scholars believe because it is not Herod's daughter, but Herodias' daughter, probably from his first marriage, her first marriage, Philip, dances for, for his guests. And he's so enthralled and so pleased with her performance that, that he says, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. And so, like the good daughter, she goes and asks her mama, what should I ask for? And her mother, being the uh, cunning uh, woman that she is, says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Well, seeking to not embarrass himself amongst his dinner guests, has John the Baptist beheaded and his head brought to Herodias. That's the story. Now, I want to point out the character and the message of John the Baptist. Because I believe here in Matthew chapter 14, we can look at the message and the character of John the Baptist. And we can contrast the message of John the Baptist with the message of Christ. And we can see the very character and the very, the very nature of God in the message of John the Baptist compared to the message of Jesus. John the Baptist could not remain silent in the face of sin and immorality, even if it cost him his life. John the Baptist understood that what Herod was doing was wrong, that it is unlawful, it is unethical, it is immoral, to steal your brother's wife and to have this adulterous relationship. Now, many of us would say, but he's the king. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. He's the president. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. He's the senator. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. But John the Baptist could not sit silently in the midst of sin. And if, if we look at the world that we live in today, is this not, is this not a condition of the world that we live in today? How many 
how many senators, how many congressmen, how many governors, how many mayors, how many people of authority have thought themselves above the law? You know, I was in a meeting with Governor Jindal uh, several years ago, and he was talking about this very same subject. And one of the pastors that were there, was a, it was a pastor's luncheon, and we were meeting with Governor Jindal, and they asked him the question of immorality and corruption and uh, unethical behavior that has run rampant amongst uh, those in Washington. And Governor Jindal responded with this. He said, everywhere you go in Washington, there are signs that say authorized personnel only. There are signs that say do not enter. There are signs that, 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 that say keep out for authorized personnel only. And when you get to Washington, you realize as a senator, as a governor, as a congressman, as a statesman, that you are authorized personnel. And that all of the signs that they keep out, all the signs that they do not enter, that they don't apply to you. And that is the message that these congressmen, that these senators, that these statesmen hear. That all of the laws that you pass, all of the, the things that... That, that you stand for, the right, the right side of the law that you stand for, they don't apply to you. And the more authority and the more power that you have, the less the law applies to you. Such was Herod. He was the king. He was the ruler of the Jewish people. Therefore, the law does not apply to him. But there's only one problem, is that the law of God applies to all. That the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, applies to all regardless of your authority, regardless of your power, regardless of your prestige. And John the Baptist could not remain silent in the face of sin. He had to, by his very nature, by the calling that God had placed upon his life, he had to, as a prophet, speak against sin. He had to say, Sin is sin, and to, to transgress God's law is a, is a condition of the sinful heart, and the judgment of God, the wrath of God, will be poured out upon your sin. Now here's the question I have for us. In our world today, do we sit silently in the face of sin? Do we allow sin in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, do we sit silently in the face of sin? Whenever our children and grandchildren come home and they say, yeah, we're moving in together. My girlfriend and I, my boyfriend and I, we're moving in together. Do we sit silently in the face of sin? Whenever we know that our coworker is, is doing something that is immoral, that is unethical, whenever he is, he is bending the rules to benefit himself or to benefit his co-workers, do we sit silently in the face of sin? Or do we say with John the Baptist, no, it's wrong. You say, well, preacher, I don't want to be that guy who's thumping the Bible. I don't want to be that that 
that do-gooder. I don't want to be that goody-two-shoes who's blowing the whistle on everybody. There is a way, the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, that there is a way that we can speak the truth in love. That the truth does not have to be spoken in condemnation. The truth does not have to be spoken in judgment. That we can speak the truth in love. It is possible to speak the truth in love. Jesus did it. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus didn't say, it's okay, do whatever you want. When the woman was caught in adultery, Jesus demonstrated to her love and compassion and then told her, go and sin no more. There was grace and compassion accompanied with, partnered with the truth. You cannot continue in this life. When Zacchaeus, when Jesus demonstrated compassion and grace to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus came down and he said, I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus heard the truth of God and said, I'm selling all my possessions and I'm going to repay everyone that I've stolen. Truth in love. We can speak the truth of God in love. Now here's the question does James chapter 4 verse 17 says, for him who knows the good he ought to do and doeth it not, it is sin. Do we sit silently in the face of sin? Not only is it the immoral relationship, not only is it the unethical behavior, but what about our brothers and sisters in Christ? What about ourselves who know the good we ought to do and doeth it not? Do we not recognize and understand that that is sin? Do we sit silently in the face of sin. The life of John the Baptist was such that he spoke out against sin. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. The wrath of God is coming. That was the message of John the Baptist. The life of John the Baptist so affected those around him because John was different. But John was only a shadow of that which is to come. Jesus was the fulfillment and the epitome of grace and forgiveness. John's message was turned from sin. Jesus' message was turned from sin and find grace. You see the difference? John said, repent from your sin. Jesus said, repent from your sin and find mercy and find grace. In fact, if you go to John, if you go back to Matthew chapter 11, I want us to look at this. I want us to see how John initially did not understand how the message of Jesus complemented the message of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. So whenever, okay, let's be honest, it was a couple of months ago. Now when John, verse 2, now when John was in prison, he heard the works of Christ and he sent word by his disciples. And he said, are you the expected one or shall we wait for someone else? And Jesus said, go report to John what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf are here, the dead are raised up, the poor of the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. In that message... Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And as he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, the passage that he's quoting from speaks of not only mercy and grace being shown, but also judgment and wrath. And what Jesus omits is judgment and wrath. And so John's questioning, he's saying, he's saying, how is it 
that you are the Messiah, that you are the expected one, and yet there is no judgment. I've been preaching judgment. I've been preaching wrath. I've been preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've been preaching that you cannot live in your sin. I even told the king of the Jews that you can't marry your sister-in-law because the wrath of God is going to destroy you. And now you're saying mercy, love, compassion. Tell me how, how this How does this work together? Are you the expected one? Or should we wait for someone else? Jesus was the fulfillment of law and righteousness. John the Baptist was the forerunner. John the Baptist was the shadow of what was to come. Jesus was the fulfillment of both righteousness and grace. Of both law and grace compassion jesus said turn from sin and find grace in the message of the gospel i want us to understand that there is a tension in the character of god on sunday nights we've been studying the cross we've been studying the atonement and in the very nature of god I want us to understand there is tension. The scripture tells us that God is a God of righteousness. That before all things that God is holy. That he is just. That he is right. That he is good and that he does good. That is the very essence of his character. Turn with me, if you will, to the Psalms. Chapter 5, verse 5. I want us to see how this passage demonstrates the justice of God. We've heard the statement, love the sinner, hate the sin. That is a statement that was stated by Mahatma Gandhi. Not Jesus, not John, not any of the prophets, but Mahatma Gandhi said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Hear what God says in Psalm chapter 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. The psalmist writes this about God. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. What a loving, warm, fuzzy God we have, amen? We hear stories of the wrath of God. When the Ark of the Covenant was being transported, the law of God said, don't touch it with your bare hands. If you touch it, I'll strike you dead. And the ox, the the, the scripture tells us that the oxen that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant stumbled. And to prevent the Ark from falling and hitting the ground, one of the priests, one of the Levites, grabbed it to keep it from falling, and as soon as he touched it, he was struck dead. Why? Because he was disobedient. The Lord hates all who do iniquity. But I thought God was a loving God, compassionate, gracious, merciful. The Scripture says in 1 John that God is love. 
We see in the book of Judges that as God gives the people of Israel over to their sin, as He gives them over to idolatry, the Scripture tells us in Judges that that after watching Israel give themselves to idolatry and give themselves to foreign gods, it says that He could stand He could stand no longer to watch them wallow in their iniquity. And so God raised up a judge to deliver them. He could stand no longer to see them suffer the consequences of their own sin. So we see God motivated by love interacting into and interceding in the life of Israel. There's a tension in the character of God. That God hates sin. He is abhorrent that God is so utterly holy and righteous that all of those who do iniquity cannot stand in His presence. For He is that good and that right and that righteous and that holy that that He hates all who do iniquity. Yet we see in Exodus chapter 34, turn with me if you will, see how the, the tension of the Godhead is there. Exodus chapter 34. As God passes before Moses, we see the character of God demonstrated in Exodus chapter 34. Verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is God describing himself to Moses. The Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps His loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And this is the God that, that, that we run to, that He is slow to anger, that He is abounding in loving kindness. He's compassionate, He's gracious, He's merciful. But listen to the rest of the text. Yet, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That yes, He is gracious, He is compassionate, but He must punish sin. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So here's this picture of this God. That if the Father has sinned, then the wrath of God, the judgment of God, will be carried not only to the Father, but to the sons, and to the grandsons, and to the great-grandsons. Because he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Because the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1 is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. There is a a tension. Do you feel the tension in the character of God? That, That John the Baptist says the wrath of God must be poured out against sin. That you cannot live in your sin. Repent. For the judgment of God is coming. That's the message of John the Baptist. And here's the message of Jesus. Grace, compassion, go and sin no more. Where are they then that condemn you? Neither then do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus, motivated by love, left glory became a man, became sin, satisfied the wrath of God, that we can know the love of God. That tension between the character of God is real. 
we ask the question, why can't God just forgive sin? We forgive people all the time. People do us wrong. They say, I'm sorry. What do we say? That's okay. I forgive you. That's okay. The problem is, is that they have transgressed against a transgressor. It is whom they have sinned against that is the greatest offense. Our greatest offense is not that we have sinned, but on whom or, f- or to whom we have sinned. That we have not transgressed our fellow, our fellow man, but that we have transgressed God. David said whenever he was caught in his iniquity, whenever he was caught in his adultery, he said, God, against you and you alone have I done what is evil and what is unright and what is, what, is, what is unlawful. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me. Have grace upon me. See, when we sin against man, we've sinned against a sinner. When we sin against God, We have transgressed against one who is without sin. And God, in His justice, cannot forgive that iniquity. He cannot just say, that's okay, because in order to say that's okay, would go against and would contradict His very character of righteousness. And God must be, must be true to His character. And so, here's the conflict God is right, He is holy, He is just, He must punish sin, but He is loving, He is kind, He is gracious, He does not want to punish sin. And as a dad, I feel this tension. I have three beautiful children who are sinners. They lie, they cheat, they steal, they do whatever they can to get what they want, they do whatever they can to get away with lying and cheating and stealing, but sometimes they get caught because they're not as slick as they think they are. And when they get caught, I take no joy in disciplining my children. When they get caught doing something that they know they're not supposed to do, when they get caught in a lie or they get caught cheating or they get caught doing something that they know they're not supposed to do. And as a dad, I know that I'm doing them no favors by ignoring their behavior and I must punish them. And we go in the back and we talk and they say, I know that what I've done is wrong and and I say that you know that I'm going to discipline you because I love you. They say, yes, I know that. It doesn't mean that I enjoy the discipline because I feel the tension of God. I feel that tension between justice and love because I am deeply in love with my children. My mom told me growing up, you'll never know how much I love you until you have kids of your own. And I had no clue how much she loved me until I had kids of my own. And then I have kids of my own and and I cannot imagine loving another human being more than I love my own children. And to bring them into a room and know that I'm going to discipline them. That I'm going to spank them. That I'm going to inflict pain upon them. To know that that this is not going to be an enjoyable process for anybody involved. And that we'll probably both be crying whenever we leave. I feel that tension 
and I want you to feel it too, church, that there is a tension that God must punish sin. He has to, in order to be true to His character, in order to be just and right and holy, He must punish sin. And the solution is the cross. It's the person of Christ. God, very God, became a man in every aspect, was fully man, yet fully God. All of the deity dwelled in Christ, yet He was a fully man. He was born of a woman. He was born as a child. He grew up. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He learned... He grew in wisdom and in stature. Scripture tells us that he got hungry. The Scripture tells us that he wept, that he had emotions, that he was a man, yet he was fully God. And God satisfied the tension by coming and becoming sin for us. And as Christ became sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God satisfied his justice by becoming sin for us, and pouring out His wrath, His judgment, upon Himself. Christ satisfied that tension. That we might be able to experience the grace, forgiveness, mercy, love, compassion. So here's the contrast. Herod, motivated by fear and pride, acted in such a way to promote himself, to protect his throne. Jesus, motivated by love, compassion, sacrificially gave of himself. So this morning, I want us to recognize Jesus is love personified. So we talk about Valentine's Day. We talk about love. We talk about compassion. We talk about demonstrating love to your spouse. How is true love demonstrated? By selfless sacrifice. God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Bo mentioned it earlier today. 1 John chapter 3. We see John the Apostle reminding us how great the Father's love has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. How? That He became a sacrifice for us. John didn't understand how the wrath of God was going to was going to be complemented by the grace of God. The answer was Jesus. It was the cross. The tension between the justice of God, the message of John the of John the Baptist, repent, turn from your sin. And the message of Jesus Grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion was solved at the cross. There are some of you here this morning 
You know the message of John the Baptist. You know that you're a sinner in need of grace. You know that you're guilty. On this Valentine's Day, hear the love of God demonstrated through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may we, by your grace and mercy, may we hear the message of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. That your goodness, your grace, your mercy was poured out upon the cross. That you satisfied the tension between wrath and judgment and grace and mercy with the person of Christ. Lord, there's some here this morning who see themselves a sinner. And they know that they know that they know that if they were to die today, that they would stand before a holy God in wrath, in judgment. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Come down to this altar find the grace of God full and free. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus said, all those who come to me I will in no wise cast them out. And if we come to Jesus we are promised forgiveness, grace and mercy. He says, if you confess your sin that he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness How does He do that? On the cross. Your sin was paid for on the cross. The message of the gospel is simple. Come to Jesus and Him alone. For those of you out there who've trusted in Jesus, may today be a day that you're reminded of the love that He poured out to you. Maybe you need to come to this altar and just thank God for the gift of salvation. Thank God that He became sin on your behalf. Maybe today you need to grab someone next to you and come down to this altar and pray because God has used them as an instrument of grace in your life. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart this morning, may you be obedient just a few moments we're going to sing a hymn of invitation as we do may you allow the spirit of God to speak to your heart God may today may you draw men unto yourself this morning in Jesus name we pray Amen.